Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Joining us today is Dr. Ruth Miller to discuss how we put together a new normal in these very abnormal times, whether we do it with struggle or flow. She integrates ancient wisdom and intuition with systems thinking and modern science. She's a synthesis of whatever is relevant to consciousness and to human potential and culture. Looking at her bio, it's clear she has a very wide range she covers. She works with institutions, individuals, nonprofits, churches, small businesses to guide them through the confusion of today's world and into an emerging culture. She confided to me that she's given over a thousand talks on these subjects. Ruth, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure and honor to have you as my guest. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so very much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, as we struggle to make sense of things and as we wonder what our new normal may be, maybe you could give us a perspective from the ancients, ancient uh, myths. I'm happy to do that. Yes. (laughs) True. So I generally don't use the word myth. Because in our culture, myth doesn't necessarily mean what it does in other cultures. And and what we're talking about is the narrative, the story of who we are and how the world works that guides our actions, guides our relationships, and guides our sense of what could be happening in the future. So in the Western world, we have the story and the narrative of the Old Testament and the New Testament in which they describe a lot of what's going on today to the point where some people are saying we are living in those end times right now as described in those books. But we can also find stories in the indigenous traditions and in other cultures. And the one that's most well known right now is the Hopi story. The Hopis don't live in a world of past, present, and future. Their language pretty much only has a present tense. So everything is unfolding now. It's unfolding in this moment through our beingness now. So in that story, which has been illustrated beautifully by a man named Willie Whitefeather in his video, Hope, which is on YouTube, this story talks about how as we're going through life, there appears to be a branching of trails. One seems to go up and the other seems to continue as it is. So many of us take the one that seems to go up. That makes all kinds of sense, right? So we go up on this path and we start discovering all kinds of ideas and things. We start accumulating things. We end up, you know, holding on to them and fighting off other people for them. We end up doing damage to the planet. And as our journey on that path unfolds, we cause a lot of harm. We experience a lot of harm. We have breakdowns and breakthroughs and more and more stuff. And it's very exciting and very dramatic until, according to the Hopis, it crashes and we fall and we wake up 
and we enter into a place of peace and silence that some people call prayer. All of the prayers of all of the people all over the world help us to wake up even more. And then we realize that the path not taken, the path that seemed to be just more of the same, is in fact the path that our soul longs for. And as we return to that path, then there is joy, there is balance, and there is harmony in our lives and in the world. So this story, this idea of what is possible could be also seen as parallel to John's revelation in the New Testament, where he talks about all of this distress and the battle of good and evil. And when it's complete, there is this silence. And then there is a new heaven and new earth, and they are one. They are no longer separate. What was separate as material earth and the spiritual heaven are now merged. And this is a very similar way of understanding what is possible. I used to have a friend who said, we read the Bible backwards. We need to start with Revelation and end with Genesis because it was her understanding that we end in that garden where there is only unity and only clarity and only beauty and peace and joy. That sounds like the uh, Garden of Eden, like going back to the Garden of Eden. That's what she was saying. That's exactly what she was saying, is that is where humanity is destined to go after we get through all the stuff we have set ourselves up to go through. And in the Hindu tradition, we've set up a lot of karma that has to be undone. In the Buddhist tradition, we've set up all kinds of dissatisfaction, which is what the word that is translated as suffering really means. We are dissatisfied with material things because no material thing can ever fully satisfy us because we are infinite, unlimited beings shortly on this material planet, this material experience, and only briefly here. So we won't be fully satisfied here unless we allowed this to be only a part of our long-term journey. So as I say, all the religious spiritual traditions offer some insight to the time when, or the process by which we get attached to the material world, we define everything in terms of it, we start grabbing and taking and doing damage to ourselves and others, and then we realize we wake up the enlightenment, the awakening, the consciousness shift, the shift happens. And we begin to realize, oh my goodness, the material is only relevant as it supports the spiritual. So that's the point we're at right now as humanity. We are at the point where we are beginning to wake up to the realization that the last 300 years of focus on materialism and the last 6,000 years of focus on institutional structures that are based on taking and accumulating rather than on supporting and interacting is about to end. So did we have to go through this? Is, was there something that we needed to learn or could we have gone another way? 
That's a great question. Within the native or the indigenous people's traditions, we always had the choice not to go this way. And many of those ancient stories talk about how the people of the worlds were separated into different areas and each of them had a different understanding of what was appropriate. But the expectation was we would all come back together. And if we came back together with that understanding, we would come together in peace and we would have that garden sooner with no great effort on anyone's part. But if we came together without that understanding, and again, the Hopi story helps us understand this. The Hopi story says the creator gave each of the groups of humanity a set of two stone tablets. On those stone tablets were the instructions on how to live well in the world. And so the yellow humanity took up to Asia, the black humans took them to Africa, and the browns held them in the Americas, and the whites took them to the European area and the Mediterranean. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, we know very well what happened to those two stone tablets. Moses came down from the peak carrying those tablets. He was very upset by what had happened while he was gone, and he threw them down and broke them. Well, in the Hopi story, if any of these tablets are broken, then when the people come back together again, it will be in violence rather than in peace. And that's exactly what happens. So the Pueblo addition to the story is that when the white, white humanity comes back, they will look like turtles crossing the land. And it happens that the conquistador's armor looked like turtles. And so when they came back looking like turtles and wielding a sword, then all the indigenous people of the Americas were alerted. Oh my goodness, this is not going to be a peaceful reconciliation. We're in for several hundred years of more distress and hopefully we'll be able to come out the other side with many of us surviving, not just a remnant, which is what has usually happened. So that gets me to this other very ancient notion, and that is what's happening now, and the Mayan 2012 thing brought it into Western awareness. What's happening now is we're moving from one world to another world. We're moving from the world which the Mayans called the fifth world, into the sixth world. The Navajo called it the fourth world into the fifth world, and other traditions call it various things. It has so many names, you know, the Age of Aquarius, the Eon of Horus, the New Age, all of these names are all over the world, going from the Kali era into the Duwapa era in the Hindu tradition. We've got many, many names for this, where the upset and the focus on material gain and accumulation and control of other beings that's been in place since about 3000 BC is over. And we are watching it fall apart in front of our very eyes. Wow. Okay, so your passion is talking about consciousness shift. And so here we are, each of us an individual, what can we do to have a better outcome, each of us individually? <laughs> mm. 
Marvelous. Well, you asked the question earlier if we had to go through this. No, we didn't have to go through this, but the, you know, the universe works in an interesting way. It taps us on the shoulder and says, you know, you could do it differently. And we go, oh, yeah, but I got it handled. I'm going to do just fine. And then it shakes us up a little bit and says, you know, there really is another way to go. And we go, oh, no, no, I'm on path. I got my goals. I'm set. And we keep going and we keep going. And it gets harder and harder. And the universe keeps saying, you could do it differently it could be easier and we keep going and that's what we have done to the point where even though futurists which i have worked as us futurists in the 70s saw this coming and said you know you could do this 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 and this and not have the climate issues the energy issues the social issues that you, you know, are headed toward nobody listened and nobody acted and so when we don't act on that deeper knowing on that inner knowing it gets harder and harder and harder so the first step is pay attention what is your inner voice saying what are the circumstances around you suggesting maybe it's time to shift directions just a little bit you know it's not like you have to give up everything and go live a whole different way although for some of us it is but for most of us it's just Oh, I don't have to do it that way. Oh, I could be living in this way instead. And one of the things that I learned both in my study of cybernetics and in my work in metaphysics was that we tend to focus on how to fix what's not working when what we need to be focusing on is the end state that we're aiming for. We need to, as Stephen Covey put it, start with the end in mind. And I love this because when we talk about the end of the world, what happens if we say the purpose, the fulfillment of the world? What happens if we use end that way as ends and means? How can I live today? How can I take my next action in alignment with the world that I would choose to live in if I had the Garden of Eden. If I were living in heaven, how would my world be? And what action would I take to align with that? And it might be just a simple change in attitude. It might be, oh my goodness, look at the blessing. When I was studying uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the tasks that I had was to interpret a bunch of writers from the 19th century. It was the Library of Hidden Knowledge. And Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in his book, Nature, if we can just allow ourselves to immerse ourselves in nature for a little while, it'll reframe the way we think. And, and the way I think do that as my temporary immediate solution, and I'm doing it right now actually, is I look out the window at trees against the sky. I look at the light, I look at the silhouette, I look at the infinity beyond the leaves, I look at the life in the leaves, and it helps me to shift out of the way I was being goal-oriented and pushing and driving into, oh yeah, there is a much bigger, more wonderful picture here. So that's one thing we can do. Listen, stop a little sooner, and shift our attitude from making it happen to, wait a minute, what's really going on here? And is it in alignment with the heaven I'm choosing? Okay, so on one hand, it's like being on a, on a train, and I'm not the driver or the conductor, 
and I can say to the other people in my car, oh, we've got to stop this train. We've got to go in a different direction. And nobody knows how to stop the runaway train that's going down a certain track. And yet here we are, sort of Mother Nature has stopped us in our tracks in a way. And I'm wondering how, are you saying that individuals can make a difference just by their action? Or do we need to be more collective? Beautiful, both. So if I am not acting in alignment with the world I wish to see, then there's no way I can have the world I wish to see. So I need to do that. Now, once I've begun to act in that way and feel and think in that way, if I were living in heaven, how would I feel when I woke up in the morning? If I were living in heaven, what would I choose to eat? If I were living in heaven, how would I see the world around me? All those things. So the extent to which I choose to do that then brings me to a state of being in which when someone else offers something to do or say or you know to respond to, then my response will be in alignment with the heavenly world I see. I probably will do those things that have the most profound effect moving in that direction and very definitely will not be acting against anything around me. Because another thing I learned from both cybernetics and, and metaphysics is whatever we are resisting, putting our energy into, we're going to get more of. I like to say that life is like a Google algorithm. You know, whatever you're searching for, it'll give you more of. <laughs> yes. So if we are upset about what is going on in the world, we're not in heaven. So what do we need to do? We need to do the inner work that says, whoa, how is that showing me my idea of what's going on in the world and my idea of what has to be and my idea of who I am and what kind of power I have? Is that how I want to live? No, I don't want to live like that. What do I want? How do I truly, what is my soul's longing here? So I go for finding that. And then in that place, an action becomes clear. Now, when I was doing this for my own personal healing after an extended illness, what I found was when I got to that place where I no longer had the emotional upset around whatever the event or the cause or the history or the story or whatever it was, I could enter into a place that felt so peaceful and had so much power that I could claim and declare what the world was going to be from henceforth and what my life was going to be. In that moment, there would be some action that would become clear. It might be write a letter. It might be form a something. It might be go to school. It might be, you know, call someone. It, it was always a different action. And I never had to tell anyone about the work I had done. And, and I'd find them changing how they were. If it was around finances, it would get turned around. If it was around some abuse that I had experienced, you know, when I was a child or a young person, it would get turned around. I wouldn't have to tell anyone that I was doing this work, but it would begin to change. And then there's this wonderful concept called morphogenetic fields, where whenever any of us goes through a shift, it increases and enhances the likelihood 
that others like us can have that new experience. And that's very exciting. To me. I love that concept of the morphogenetic field by Rupert Sheldrake, where whatever we think, whatever yes. we experience contributes to the totality of the human experience. So I'm thinking, okay, so if I'm angry, I'm contributing anger to humanity. And if I'm peaceful and blissful, I'm contributing that. Absolutely. That's part of it. But it's also, if I learn something, then everyone else will have an easier time learning it. If I develop a new skill, then everyone else will have an easier time developing it. I had an experience of this. I had been teaching, I'd been doing leading guiding visualizations for years. And then I stopped for a little while because the world called me to do other things. And, and I visited a large New Thought Church, a Science of Mind Church. And uh, she had the whole room go into guided visualization as part of the service. And I'd not seen that before. When I had been taught how to do it, you know, it was a five-minute induction of telling, teaching people how to relax their bodies and breathe and focus and all of that. And this woman had the whole room ready to visualize in three deep breaths. And I went, oh my goodness, 20 years of practice has paid off. The whole world can now go into visualization states, the alpha state in three deep breaths. It doesn't take five minutes anymore. That's great. So that's like Roger Bannister was the first person to run the uh, a mile in under four minutes. Yep. And now high school students do it. Yep, exactly. So in some ways, I think of my work as helping humanity achieve its fullest capacity as human beings. Okay, so give us some suggestions for how further to do that. <laughs> all right. So we have, we have all kinds of possibilities here. If we are unhappy with our lives, the first thing we need to do is look at what have I told myself about myself and the world that I don't want to have in myself or my world anymore. And we need to use some kind of process. There's a bunch of them out there. I have a couple laid out in some of my books too where we can not have that belief define our choices, define our perceptions. So that's the first thing. Look at our environment, look at our experience and go, oh, I don't really want to have that anymore. I must believe that's happening. I want to let go of that belief. So that's the first thing. The second thing then is to go, as I said earlier, if I were to have a heavenly life, what would that look like? What would be the feeling? How would it taste? How would it smell? How would, what would I see? What, what kind of environment would I be living in? This summer for me has been heavenly. I'm living in a little cottage on a river. There's an orchard on the property. And so almost every day, I'm either gathering greens or I'm gathering fruit for today's food. And I'm going, wow. And the weather has been so beautiful. Where I've been, it hasn't been too hot. It hasn't been rainy and foggy. It's just been absolutely heavenly for months. I feel truly as if I have been transplanted. <laughs> the building itself, I would not have chosen this building. But as I'm in it, the space is perfect for my needs. And I get to have everything that really matters to me at hand. Wow. So. 
I've spent years looking at what a heavenly life might look like, and now I'm experiencing it. Yes, we all can have this happen for us and with us. And it rarely is about how much stuff we have. At some point, I got rid of 80, 90% of my stuff uh, uh, when I sold my house, my big house a while back. It just made such a difference. I mean, from there, I, that was a pleasant life, but this one's heavenly. <laughs> So that's the next step. Take a look at what we have been hanging on to, the things and the ideas and the material and the people that we thought we should have in our lives and realize, wait a minute, maybe that should is not real anymore. It may have been once, but it isn't now. One of the things that I gave up was having meetings happen in my home. Well, guess what? <laughs> the whole world has given that one up. <laughs> so a lot of the things that I sold were the facility to do that. <laughs> yes. I loved what you said about stopping. Most of us have to get a hit over the head pretty hard to stop. This virus is telling the whole world, hey, you're on a path that doesn't work. Stop and choose a different path. And I think a lot of people are based on real estate here on the Oregon coast. Oh my goodness, there's almost nothing for sale anymore because almost everything that's been on the market for years is sold. Because I believe, based on what I've seen in the world going around me, when that stock market crash happened, it was happening because everyone was selling or you know, cashing out of the market. And they now have handfuls of dollars, you know, anywhere between a hundred and five hundred thousand dollars that they had put away in the market, and they are using that money to live where they want to live, to live where they think heaven is. I think that's beautiful. I think it's part of what's actually happening here. So we let go of the beliefs, we let go of the stuff and the shoulds, we get clear about what looks like heaven, we allow each experience that feels like heaven to happen, then we actually start looking at the world as a whole and going into a place of creating, creating the, the possibilities, creating the connections, creating the images and the visions. In our political system right now, we need to be creating because what we're seeing is the political system is falling apart in the U.S. and in the world. In our institutions, our education, our healthcare, our finance, all of these things, these institutions are based on a set of ideas and possibilities and understandings that no longer work. So let's create, each of us individually and collectively, create what could be the world that we would like. And what will begin to happen is instead of being caught up in our shoulds and, and our beliefs about what has been and has to be sustained, if we can let that go, it'll be like a surfer getting on the wave and riding the wave instead of being attached to being in a particular spot in the ocean and letting the waves crash over it, over it and over again. Yes, yes. Okay, so suppose someone lives in a place where they, they're about to be kicked out of their apartment, they've lost their job, yep, yep. they, you know, everything's falling apart. Yep, been there, done that, had that happen. 
So those things happen when we have hung on to our, I gotta, I have to, I should, I must, far too long. I don't like the feeling of that because that makes me responsible for my circumstances. Yeah. Nonetheless, it is what happens. So we get hit over the head, if you will, by this two by four that says, no, you don't get to live by your shoulds, oughts, goddess, have to, must. I call those the five toxic words, by the way. You don't get to live by that. You get to stop and really think and really reframe how you're going to be on the planet. For me, when that happened, it meant letting go of a household of things. This was years ago. Everything I owned fit in a VW bug, being open to discovering what was next. And knowing that whatever was next, I am taken care of. That was huge. Knowing that. I'd already done a lot of the releasing work. I was physically in much better shape than I had been. And it was because I was ill that all these other things had happened. And I was ill because of all the shoulds, oughts, gots, and musts. So it all makes sense looking back. And there I was, you know, with a hundred bucks and a VW bug that was used and actually had been a gift. What happened was a woman that I had worked with who takes in animals that need to be taken care of, dogs, cats, birds, and turtles, said, I've got an extra room. Come stay with me and help care for these animals. And I did. And I got more and more healthy. And I learned a lot. We learned a lot. We learned how to communicate with the animals in some wonderful ways using The Kinship with All Life by J. Allen Boone. Then as I got stronger, opportunities opened for other possibilities. I'm living here on the Oregon coast, and there are thousands of empty homes that are vacation homes. And it's really a shame because we have a lot of people. We have in one county alone, we have 400 kids who are homeless. So a lot of people are living in their cars. I've been noticing online, a lot of people are buying old vans and turning them into their home. And they're finding that it is a good temporary solution while they get clear about what heaven really is. And then what I've seen over and over and over again is by following their inner guidance, and this happened to me over again too, when I pay attention to what that inner voice is saying, I find myself in exactly the right place at the right time for exactly the right opening for the next step in my life. Ooh, and that takes a lot of trust. <laughs> it does. Okay, so let me tell you how I learned to trust that. The very first step, living from the should, dots, gotta, have to, must. I was doing far too many things, living a far too full life. And I was also being required to teach back-to-back -back classes, four classes a week, on top of a whole lot of other stuff. And there was no way that I was going to be able to put in three or four hours of prep for all of these classes. So I had to learn to trust that I knew this material and I knew what needed to be said. So I would make an outline of five to seven points that I knew were going to get across in this particular class session. And then I had to learn to trust that they would get across. It was huge for me. That was so big because I had been someone who wasn't even willing to teach a class by myself, you know, a couple of years before that. So to do this was amazing. So I did this 
And uh, lo and behold, exactly the right thing was said for that group in that class. And it might be slightly different the next class, but the same points were covered. And then I began to realize I was having to drive a lot during those years. And I began to realize that I always was in exactly the right place to get exactly what I needed, whether it was a grocery store or a gas station or whatever it was. And it was just oh my goodness, I can begin to trust this. And the more work I did in my own healing process of releasing my beliefs that this is a dangerous world and allowing the possibility that this is a world that is for my full support and well-being, the better it became. And so those years were in part an exercise in developing that trust. And it proved itself over and over again. And then when I was doing those translations, those interpretations of the 19th century writers, I was asked to do Wallace Waddle's book, The Science of Getting Rich. And I've never liked that title. But he opens with this. He says, this universe is designed to maximize the development of every being in it. Everything that any of us needs to become our true full fully developed selves is always made available to us as much as we are ready for it. Wallace Waddle. Okay, so there's another line that helped me a lot during these years that I was learning to do this. It's from The Course in Miracles. It says, lost love, lost friendship, lost money, lost belongings are all out of your awareness because you have held them away from you. What I came to understand is my belief about how the world is was how I was holding them away from me. My belief that this was a dangerous world and I had to work hard to make any progress at all and I had to really, 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 whatever it is, was keeping me from experiencing the incredible, incredible gifts of the world. So this summer, I never had to buy fruit all summer. <laughs> there was always plenty of fruit greens and of course then people with their gardens i had moved too late to plant a garden i have a few things in some pots some herbs and such then people would start sharing the things from their gardens the universe gives us everything we need and of course by being out in the world picking the plums or the cherries or the berries or the whatever is good for the body as well so i would pick just enough for a day and there would always be plenty for that day Go back to this lost idea. So say you, you have a, a precious ring or a, a cherished book and it, you've misplaced it or lost it. Beautiful. That is so cool. So I've got two stories around that one. My favorite one is my mother had given me a brooch that was silver filigree with a red stone. And I had worn it on a shirt and then worn it on a coat. One day it was gone. And I had no idea why or where it had gone. That was hard. I really had a hard time letting go of that one. But I finally did. And I just went, obviously, it's wherever it needs to be. A few weeks after I let it go, I was visiting with a new student. And she suggested that we meet for lunch, not too far from where I was living. And I said, fine. We met. And she came in and she said, you know, this has been the most amazing day. Everything is coming together in these beautiful ways. And when I was crossing the parking lot from the shopping center, not too far from here, I found this brooch. It was my mother's brooch. Wow. I had to let go of being attached to having it. Now, having been 
letting go of it, I let her keep it. I didn't take it back because I had let go of it. So that's my favorite story about lost. There's a whole nother set of things around, you know, lost or misplaced or whatever. You can say that you lost such and so, and it was really meaningful. And having lost it, you now can't blame. Well, in that case, your subconscious mind didn't want to do whatever that was. And the losing was the outward reason. I have a friend who calls it the fulfilling circumstance that allowed you at some level to not do what you really didn't want to do. But there's another one, and I love this. There's a whole bunch of new material out there called Reality Shifts. It's based on the idea. My mother and I used to say there were imps, and imps would hide things from us until we were ready to receive them again, and then they would show show up again. That was fun when I was growing up. But what this new body of material is suggesting is that we are constantly moving between universes, parallel universes, and that in some universes, those things are at hand, and in other universes, they aren't. So we need to be in the ones where they're at hand if they are in alignment with who and what we are. And I love that phrase, at hand. I have a pen at hand. I have a glass of water at hand. And Jesus used to say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It wasn't something we had to die and get to. It's at hand just like my glass of water and my pen. That is so cool. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, so before we run out of time, can you tell us books you've written that you recommend and your website if people want to contact you? Sure, sure. My website is www.ruthlmillerphd.com. It has a listing of 20 or so books on it that you can kind of check out. It also has my sharings. That is every couple, three weeks, I get this fun thing that I want to tell people about and I put it on there and it has my bio and it has videos and links to other videos that I've done, talks that I've done. All that information is there. Like I said, I did do that series. It's called The Library of Hidden Knowledge. It's published by Beyond Words, Simon & Schuster. That is seven books that were written by philosophers in the 19th century. And what I did is the first half of the book is my modern day interpretation with summary bullets and exercises. And then the second half of the book is their original text. So if someone, you know, is a little scared of Emerson, my book Natural Abundance really helps. If someone gets really frustrated by the sexist language of as a man thinketh, I've written a book called As We Think, So We Are. That's my version with more generic language. And also one of the things that I do in those books is if all the spiritual references are Christian, I will say, well, yeah, but there's also this Hindu one, this Buddhist one, the Jewish, you know, whatever. I'll draw on other spiritual references, other spiritual literature. So that's the library of hidden knowledge. I've also written a history of the healing process called mental healing in the new thought tradition. That's the science of mental healing. In the books that lay out this process I I talked about earlier, letting go of the beliefs that don't work anymore, I wrote a book called Making the World Go Away. I wrote it actually at the time of 2012, and then I updated it again a couple of years ago. When the world is too much, when it is a burden, what do we do? And that's how we get, we have to let go of those shoulds, oughts, and goddess, those rules and stories that we grew up with that no longer serve us. Well, I'd like to ask you a sort of off-the-wall question. The Mayan calendar 
the 5,125-year calendar, Bakhtun ended on 2012. And some people said that humanity was going to become a new species. What do you think of that? Yep. I love it. The thing is, it didn't happen overnight, so everyone got really upset. So the Mayan idea and the idea of all the indigenous peoples who saw humanity coming together. And, you know, if you look at the U.S. today or many countries around the world, we're all now many different races, all in one, you know, not so much melting pot as salad bowl. But we have come together. And in all of those traditions, we come together in order to take humanity to its next level. Remember what I said about achieving humanity's fullest capacity. We have so many other senses than we've been trained to use. We have so many capacities when we bring our minds in charge of the body-mind system. We have so many spiritual capacities. And the Mayans said that the, the new human experience would be we would develop spiritual and mental technologies. Ken Carey, in his books, says that the next 400 years, we will be using the mind and our spiritual capacities to transform our bodies and to transform the world into a heavenly experience that includes traveling in space with or without spaceships and living under the ocean with or without submarines. We will be doing all kinds of marvelous things things without focusing on the material world, according to all of these traditions. So an increase in intuition in our, our children being born today might be an early indication of that? I'm not sure they have any more. It's just that we're not kicking it out of them. You're in, if you, if you, you know, the number of women in their 80s and 90s who over the last 20 years that I've been teaching this stuff say, you know, that was beaten out of me. So we're allowing what human beings are born with. Every other culture trains these gifts. Our culture took a biblical injunction against witchcraft and, and fortune telling and forgot the biblical injunction to engage in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, discernment of spirits and prophecy. We're learning to do that again. Intuition is an innate human capacity that is no longer forbidden in Western culture. And we're going to see great results from that. Some people say the emerging species that we are as we let go of our attachment to the mind-body and start being the spiritual beings that we truly are who are developing and managing this mind-body, we will become homo spiritualensis as opposed to homo sapiens. Oh, say that three right. times. <laughs> right, spiritualensis. But some people shorten that to homo spiritus. But the concept is that humanity will be living from its spiritual essence rather than from its material appearance. And won't that be an amazing life to be living? I'm looking forward to it. Mm, a lot to think about. Okay, is there any last minute uh, point you'd like to make or comment before we close the show? I just like people to know that yes. What is happening now is a function of what we've done and thought in the past. We don't need to be upset about that. What we do need to do is know that what will be happening and can be happening in the next now is a function of where our mind and spirit is focused. Thank you so much for letting me have this time. 
Oh, so that's a really great way to end. Thank you, Dr. Ruth, for being with us. My pleasure. So you don't miss any of our shows, make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.